Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Stéphane Guidon. Originally from France, Stéphane is an autistic self-advocate currently living in the UK. He works for the National Autistic Society as a Senior Branch Engagement Officer and Project Lead. The National Autistic Society is the largest autism charity in the UK, dedicated to creating a society that works for autistic people. In today's conversation, we discuss Stefan's journey of self-discovery, his autistic strengths, how he relates to his autistic son, autism awareness in France, Stefan's role at the National Autistic Society, and key components of a successful peer group. In this episode, discover what's possible when peers connect. To learn more about Stefan and his work, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now, I present you, Stéphane Guidon. Hi, Stéphane. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here. Hi. Let's start with a brief introduction. Okay. I work for an organization called the National Autistic Society, which is the largest autism charity in the UK. And I'm a project leader. And currently, I work on a project which aims to train, guide autistic adults to form their own social peer groups all over Wales, because it's a, a pilot which is happening in Wales. So that's my thing. Okay, great. We'll definitely get into more details of your project later on. But I'd like to first talk about your autism. So when did you learn about your diagnosis? So I was, it was back in France where I'm from, and I was 16. And I went through all through schools. I went to what we call in France, um, pedagogues, you know, which is like child psychologist, basically. And I was just dipping in and out, never really understanding why I was being sent there. But, you know, it kind of like took me out of school, so I didn't complain, but never really understood what was the idea behind it. At school, I guess my handwriting wasn't too great. I wasn't, I was always one of those like can do but won't do kind of yeah. student. There was a few things I was really, really good at. And everything else, I just had no interest, maybe because I wasn't stimulated or, you know, just showing very little interest in insight. Now that I work with a lot of, you know, autistic people throughout the board, I know how that presents. But at the time, I just didn't have any idea. It's only when I went to see the another child psychologist when I was 16 that I feel that a test I didn't 
actually realized it was, uh, you know, like a, a notice and matrix test. I just fill it out. And, um, he took me in and he said, okay, so, you know, based on the test, it's, it's very likely that you've got what we call, you know, Asperger's syndrome. And I was, I said, so, okay, is that, is that bad? Is my, you know, is, is, is it physical? Is, is something going to happen to me? I said, no, 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 nothing like that. Look, I'll tell you what it means is, so there's two kinds of people. You've got people who are sprinters and people who are long distance runners. And you, you're a long distance runner. And to this day, I don't <laughs> see that made any sense and it really hasn't helped me at all. And I had to discover everything for myself. You know, what, what I meant, what it meant to me, how to uh, apply it avoid the pitfalls. And actually my story is very similar to a lot of um, autistic people that I know around my age. You know, difficulties holding jobs, trying to get the best fit, failing miserably, jump from, and I went from like job to job. It's only now recently, very recently, and I'm like 45, that I found my niche, but that's because I decided to, to really kind of accept what was going on and actually just, jump right into it, right into the autism business. And I realized that by doing that, I felt, you know, oh, finally I've got a job where, where I belong because I'm lucky that I'm treated very well where I am. Obviously I would be because, uh, you know, it's an autism mm, organization. Right. But it's, uh, yeah, I really fitted. But also know a lot of people who are still struggling even now to kind of make peace with it and, use it to the best of the advantage. I'm still struggling with, you know, bits and pieces in terms of, you know, theory of mind and, and communication and getting the wrong end of the stick and how I need to present myself. Social burnout is a big one. But overall, I'm not doing too bad. But sometimes I do think that back when I was 16, if things had been explained to me a little better and I knew what my shortcomings were going to be or the areas that I needed to work on and, and, and develop. So my life would be a bit more straightforward. It definitely would have helped. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, almost 30 years ago in France, what was the understanding of autism? Well, you see, it still hasn't moved much from, from 30 years ago, but it's definitely, it really doesn't have a, well, definitely 30 years ago, it didn't have a, a positive slang to it. It was seen as a disability, but it was seen as, in the, as a disability as the same bag as schizophrenia or psychosis or even Down syndrome or, or anything. It, it was really seen as something that was life-limiting, opportunity-limiting, and there was so little understanding of it. Even now, I struggle to find people in France who really have a good handle on what it is mm-hmm. i remember talking to because my son my son is autistic as well for my sins and i remember when my son was born i spoke to my dad about ranking and this is it and he, it was really hard for him to get his head around it and he was a you know really smart well educated man but this was just so out of his backyard just did not have never met anybody that was autistic and I think that's it. In France, you really have to chase after them because it's somehow the, you know, the hiding, the all in hiding is really hard to actually 
find autistic people who will, you know, come out and almost disclose, you know, I'm autistic and those are, those, this is my life and those are the things that I need. So definitely in France, I think it's, it's still not a taboo subject, but there's still a lot of work to do. And I think there's a lot of work to do to turn it into something that's, you know, positive or at least, you know, different, but we can work with that. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, culturally, there's just a big stigma around mental health in general in France, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, mental health. I'm lucky that here in England, there is a big discussion around it. But in France, <laughs> I don't want to seem anti-patriotic, but, you know, France can be quite a chauvinist country and quite set in their ways when it comes to certain things. And I think mental health is is one of those. There is, again, poor understanding, not much treatment going around. You really have to to be at a certain level of need or when crisis for something positive mm-hmm. to happen. But community level, you're not going to find or never have seen um, community center or you know, practitioners who really work like at neighborhood level, that just doesn't seem to exist unless you're in crisis and you go to hospital, but this doesn't seem to be any CS under that, which shows the lack of knowledge and the damage that it can do, you know, not just to the economy, but to families, to communities and so on. So shame really. Yeah. I think there's, you know, some progress that's been made at least in the past few years even with research yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah there is a lot of research being done mm-hmm. and you know depending where you're going in france you can see it's like everywhere you know there's like example of good practice mm-hmm. and it, what you want to see ideally is you know those network of like good practitioners and and good research kind of like joining together for the greater good and not just but this is my research and this is my research and you know not going to share because of politics of geographical locations. But you're right, uh, there is progress like everywhere, but it's just slow. Yeah. Okay. So, Stefan, what are some of your autistic strengths or special interests? Ooh, um, my strengths. Um, I've got a pretty good memory for facts that I'm interested in, but that sounds so autistic. <laughs> but I, I really do have quite a good memory for certain things, like almost like an encyclopedic level, quite good at researching things that I'm interested in. I think actually for, I managed to get quite empathetic and, you know, to others, but that took a lot of practice. I'm still struggling sometimes to put myself in somebody's shoes, but that's why I, I'm lucky that because I've been working from a, a young age, I've kind of gathered those skills, you know, painfully, so I could like function in the society. Mm-hmm. And my shortcomings, I guess, you know, they, they're the same as everybody else. That, that <laughs> we're on the same boat. Social burnout is is quite a big one for me. I need a, I need an awful lot of me time every day, hours and hours of uh, me time. Once I've done a day's work, especially if it involves speaking to people, I'm I'm really wiped out by the end of the day, even if it's working for just a few hours. You know, I know a lot of people who are similar. I've got a, somebody I work with who 
you know, she, she would do the social thing for like a day and then she would unplug everything and you just can't get hold of her for three days straight. And that's, you know, at first I saw that's a bit taking it too far. And actually knowing her situation, I, you know, I realized actually not that's generally what she needs to do mm. in order for us to, to recharge the batteries. Yeah. Because that's one thing that I've learned is that autistic people are, are kind of like social levels of energy are very small. If, if you think of it as like a battery, you know, your average person might start on like 80% first thing in the morning. My battery is like 20%. That's not a good day. Mm. So I really need to look after myself and cut out, you know, all the distraction. I think one of the downside of that is, you know, I've got very few friends. I'm not especially good at like maintaining friendship because to me, it looks like a lot of work. And again, that sounds like typical autistic comment. But I'm lucky that the two friends that I've got, they're also autistic, so they know exactly what it's like. So I don't have to like try too hard and I don't have to feed it and nurture it all the time. Mm-hmm. Is your wife autistic? No, she's not, but she's English. So, you know, it's you know it's fairly similar. <laughs> <laughs> no, but she's a, you know, she, she really understands, but she, you know, she's one of those, she, she, she's really independent. She, we don't, you know, with with the kids that we've got with my son, who is quite, you know, because he's, he's he's autistic, but he's also diabetic type one. So his life and the whole life by default is quite regimented. So when we get time off, we don't really want to like hang out together and do stuff as a, you know, as a couple. It's like I do my things and you know she goes out and see her friends or go and do yoga. So you know we kind of like we make it work and we've always made it work you know we didn't have to have massive conversation sometimes you know we do feel uh, you know we haven't spent time together for for ages i don't feel it as much as she does but that you know i do realize actually she needs to spend time with me now and and actually i do need to spend time with her as well Mm -hmm. it's about being able to identify it but like i said because our life is so regimented some sometimes we just i lose myself into the day-to-day and to my interest and looking after my son and and so on. And before you know it, it's like three months have gone by. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a, wow. Yeah. You said you have two kids? Yeah. Okay, and one is autistic. Yeah. Do you feel a special connection to the one that's autistic? Yeah, and it's not just, uh, it's not just like the biological aspect of it all. I really do, actually, especially when it was... When he was younger, we <laughs> it was awfully easy to get down to his levels. You know, it was anything he was into, like you know, video games or Sonic the Hedgehog or whatever. I could generally get on his wavelength, and we spent hours just bashing, bashing it with like games and and so on. But as he's growing up now, I've been able to identify those milestones, and sometimes it's quite uncanny how much of his milestones are similar to mine. Mm. But he's got the knowledge and the understanding and the diagnosis, whereby up into my teenagers, I didn't. But I can see his milestone in like, his vocabulary would be like the same, a few thousand words. And then, you know, something would happen, no no obvious reason. And suddenly we just make a massive leap. And his, his reasoning and his vocabulary would just seem to like jump massively. It's like, what did you do? What? 
how did we get that from? And actually, it's, it's all internal. And, you know, it's just stuff that he picks up. It's at school and he internalizes it. And sometimes it comes out. And when it comes out, it's like, right, okay, it's changing. And so you, you get all okay. those milestones that actually you can, you can really see them in, I've worked with um, children and young people on the spectrum as well. And you can see that when you, when you work long enough with a, an autistic child or an autistic teenager, you can see those milestones and how they hit them and what they want to do with them. And yeah, it's really, really interesting how they, you know, how they grow and yeah, how they evolve. Really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Cool. How old is he now? He's about in February, we'll be 16. Oh my God, 16. Oh, wow. And so far, we haven't had the typical. We have another like, typical stuff, you know. My um, my daughter is a bit older; she's two years older, mm-hmm. and we haven't had any of the typical teenage stuff, you know. The the much more grounded that I was. I was an absolute disaster when I was when I was a teenager. Just just awful, awful. Uh, so badly behaved is untrue, but compared to that, my two kids they just. Don't know what we've done, but we must have done it right. They just <laughs> loved it, you know. No yeah. trouble, straight A students. Are, are you actually matched? <laughs> I demand a DNA test. So it's it's just amazing once once you've got the knowledge and you know the pitfalls, you can avoid it. Mm-hmm. But it's also been really hard with the kids for a long time. We couldn't find appropriate placement for my son because he was never going to do mainstream. So it's always been like SCN especially school, and we've just struggled because I live in a place which is quite, not rural, but, you know, it's not exactly London. Mm-hmm. And there's only so many specialist schools around, and we've tried them all, and each of them just really let us down. And now it's somewhere where it's really happy, and again, we were talking about those milestones, it just keeps hitting new milestones, like almost like every month. So it's amazing, but yeah, it's been really a hard fight, and I know a lot of parents of autistic children they would tell you that as well they would say it's been such a fight and it's it's such a shame that it has to be that way that you need to go through all those hoops in order to find you know that one place who would really understand your kid and treat him treat him right right yeah okay stefan let's transition into talking about your work okay so tell us about your organization the national autistic society yeah, so the project I'm working on is actually part of a bigger vision that the the, Otis, the the National Autistic Society has. And one big part of it is the idea that, you know, we almost coined, we, we didn't coin autism as a superpower, but sometimes when we talk about the strategy, that's the kind of take we want on it. I always find Autism as a superpower, a little bit corny. However, I do think it needs to be presented in a much more positive way. So it's, it's really it's about, you know, positivity and it's about what autism, what autistic people have to offer society. I think that's the, that's the big thing. So I guess my role in that big strategy is that by enabling autistic adults to form peer support group, it's the beginning of that process. It's the beginning of getting autistic people out, out in the world, and for them to be seen 
doing stuff that normal people do. One of the big um, assumptions that, because this was a Welsh government project, so, you know, government gives us money for the project. We had the money for about, it runs, the project runs until 2025. And the brief was, you know, show autistic adults how to form peer support groups. But on the back of that was the idea that it was under the umbrella of loneliness, which is obviously, you know, loneliness in the UK is, is, you know, it's a public health matter. It's a killer. And we know that autistic adults specifically are eight times more likely to experience feeling of loneliness and isolation. So when that happened, and there's nothing to kind of alleviate this feeling of loneliness, the only place they're going to go is mental health services because chances of developing anxiety, like crippling anxiety, that increases tenfold. Mm -hmm. Uh, Feeling of depression up to like clinical depression, that increases massively as well. So the big idea, I think, behind the project really is to you know, is to make sure that we have autistic adults in the community who don't fall into, you know, the, the pits of, of depression and loneliness. So that was the kind of brief from the project. And that project has taught me so much about not making assumptions. We were thinking, you know, if you bring autistic adults together, will they come? Can they travel? Do they have any money to attend activities? You know, we had all those questions and actually all those at the beginning, we kind of view them as potential buyers. We know that there's like only 20% of the autistic population, not even that, who is actually holding down a job. So if they don't work and they don't benefit, how are they going to go bowling every week? Mm-hmm. You know, so that's that's not realistic. And then one of the massive challenges is that in Wales, and that's the reason I think the pilot took place there, it's quite big. You know, it's it's like... Yeah, it's it's fairly big compared to to the UK, but there's more sheep than people. It's you know, <laughs> it's really spread out. There's only like th- three cities, and the rest of it is like little town, little villages, and little winding roads and just mountains, mountains everywhere. Statistically, we know that those people are there. So how do we get them together? One big challenge as well was we were coming out of COVID when when I started a project properly. So traveling was a was a big no-no at the time. But when I started hanging out with uh, people informally before I started setting up groups and showing adults how to do those groups, I could see that they were so anxious, so anxious to do this. But at the same time, they were desperate. They were desperate for social contact. But they were really anxious to go out and, and put themselves into that situation because you put yourself in a very vulnerable place when you meet unknown people and suddenly there's 20 people in a restaurant, you don't know any of them. Mm-hmm. And they're all in the same boat because they're autistic. So that's the, that's the big idea. But it's very challenging. And obviously COVID did not help. Right. You know, when, when you tell autistic people, you know, you need to stay home and, uh, no, not touch anyone, don't go near anyone. They really take it to the letter. I know I did. Mm-hmm. Even so, after six months of that, even me, I, I got a bit sick of the, I got a bit sick of it and social distancing. So it was a big part of the project was kind of like jogging people out of that right. and like getting them out in the world. 
Yeah. Okay. So having had some experience now in, in leading some of these groups or getting people to lead the groups themselves, what would you say are some key components for a successful peer group? That's a very good question. When I look back at, for example, two, two groups which work exceptionally well, the pilot group and another group that I'm working very closely with, one of the things that was the, the main ingredients was the group leader is really good. And what I mean really good is that, first of all, he's autistic, he's, he, he, he's on Asperger's syndrome, you know, that's how he identifies himself and that's fine. His son, who is like nearly 30 years old, is also autistic. When I approached him, it was like, you know, there was nothing like that that's been done in my area. I'm just desperate to get that started. But the way he thought about it, that's what made it work. He was thinking about it and what he called the hub and spoke model, where the group is the hub. And eventually, when a group grows more confident, you can get like different spokes coming out of the group. So you can take one person who has gone so confident in a group that he wants to start his own group and he wants to lead his own group. And maybe they will have a completely different interest and that's okay. But the main hub was a, a, a boarding group. Basically, that's what the group became. The secret of it, one of the main secrets, was that Simon, who was the leader, communicated with the group all the time through email, all the time. You know, he would say, okay, uh, next group is in four weeks' time, you know, 1st of Feb. And then he would spend every week sending a reminder so people didn't forget and so they could prep. You know, just a tiny little email, just really small saying, hi, everyone, just a reminder that it's happening on that day. And I said, and he would send one every week until the event. Event would happen. Everybody would turn up at the boarding place they would have a really good time. They knew that Simon was there. They knew that the group was there. Sometimes there would be new people coming in, and that was okay too. And then at the end of the session, everybody goes away. Simon would send an email for the next one, and so on. So communication and thinking about preferred method of communication, because some people like to text better, not an email. Some people like the phone call. So it took all of that into account. So each person was uh, treated as an individual, as part of the group. The other thing that made a massive difference is that the venue was the same every time. And mm. that, for that group, some groups, it's not necessary, but for that group, it was absolutely necessary. And that's why it got so successful, is because it was the same venue. And we got really lucky with that venue, because basically it's, um, it's in a caravan park, and the hub of the caravan park, the kind of like social community space, it's always open. So in there, you've got a bowling alley, you've got a pool room, you've got a cafe, and you've got a, an actual bar as well. And there's tons of space. And it's never really, really busy because of where it is. It's, it's quite secluded. So the owner also happens to be autistic. So there is so many things that align with that group. But once we secure the venue, that's when the group really took off. Mm. The one thing that was really interesting, and that's where I've learned really the benefit of the group, is we had a couple of people, when they came and play bowling, you could really tell because, you know, bowling is not a natural activity for an autistic person. You know, when you think of, like, all the stimulation, you know, loud noises, 
banging lads, screen like like flash at you all the time. You don't think, yeah, we might have issues there. And we've had a couple of people who came in the first time. One of them was becoming, you know, who was actually came forward to become a leader soon. It was almost like vibrating with stress on the first one. And you couldn't talk to him. It was just, it was just so tense. But, you know, he was playing. Eventually, I put him aside and I was like, you're right. And, you know, I can see you're a bit tense. And this is a bit too much for you. And he said, yeah, it is too much. But I'm just so desperate to attend something that I want to be here. I have to be here. I have to challenge myself because if not, I just won't go anywhere. And now he's become a core member of that group. And he trashes everybody at bowling when he never played before. <laughs> and even so he's really quiet, you know, he would be the first one to sit at a table with somebody else, with the, a new a new member, for example. And he's just absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. And that that's a real success story. Yeah. And we've, we've got another group who is very different. They don't have a, a set venue. They've got venues all over the shop, very varied. But again, the crowd is lovely. The group is lovely. The leader is you know, very sensitive to the people's need, and that's what really works. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's, it's just brilliant to be part of that, really. Right, right. Yeah, you're giving people a sense of belonging to a community that otherwise wasn't there. And that's so important, especially one for this population who is already feeling isolated amongst the rest of society. But yeah, also during a pandemic, coming out of a pandemic, when people are afraid. So setting up a safe space where they feel welcomed and understood and validated, especially if the leader themselves is autistic. I mean, that's the Mm. point of the peer-led support group, right? That's right. I think it's, it would be, I'm not saying it would be impossible, but it would be challenging for a group leader who is not autistic to try and establish a group because there would be also uh, I've got a lady at the moment who is trying to do that and her son is autistic but she's not but she's running a she's just starting a group and I'm going to she invite me beg me to kind of like supervise it like the beginning few sessions of it but I think overall it would be difficult for a group leader who is not autistic to really get it to really get the idiosyncrasies and the need that you know some people would have, uh, because even with the group leaders who are, who are autistic and I've trained them myself and and so on, you're still dealing with one of the challenges of this is you're dealing with autistic people, right? yeah, but you're also dealing with adults, so you can't lead from the front, you can't tell them what to do or or suggest what to do or put your foot down on, on any way. It, it has to be a, a juggling, completely like cooperative exercise. But you are dealing with adults who have some issues beyond autism sometimes. You know, it could be like mental health and so on. And a group leader has to to be able to, to handle that and reconcile those needs with the autism. So I think, yeah, somebody who is not would find it, Tricky, not impossible, but just a little bit more tricky. And mm. they might need, you know, support, which is also part of the project. We spent months and months writing a, what we call a toolkit, which is basically a, a book. It's a set of resources full of like one pages and 
transcript and videos on how to set up a group successfully. And when the project hits the next quarter, when it goes, the project goes full on public, we're going to release that book, that resource, because we want literally any autistic adult to be able to like take this guide and look at it and say, right, with this, I can set up my group. Might be challenging, but I know I can do it. And this guy will show me how to do it. And we also want professionals to be able to do it. We know that there is a big gap with professionals wanting to do some form of participation with autistic adults. And they know how to do it kind of like instinctively at professional level, but nobody has actually collated all those tips and tricks in mm-hmm. one location, you know, in a book. And that's why we did that as well, because we want professionals to be confident that they can do it as well and make it sustainable. But I think the, the biggest challenge for a project like that is setting up a group is actually fairly easy. But having a group that's stable and self-sustaining and keeps going months after months after months, you know, until it becomes like one year, two years, three years, that's actually very rare. There are not many of those that I'm aware of who have actually lasted that long because there's always something to take the group down, whether it's an individual that, you know, he hasn't been, maybe that person is not ready for a group and he's decided to take everybody down with him because he's got specific needs which haven't been met or, you know, the group run out of steam or suggest activity which costs too much money or, or something like that. It does, you know, it happens a lot. And I think sometimes that's why professionals get discouraged with uh, setting a group because they realize, actually, this is quite a lot of work. Hmm. There needs to be some kind of commitment and involvement. And one hour a week, it's not going to cut it. You know, you you really need to invest. And professionals are busy, you know, know, they've got a full-on calendar. So if you tell them, right, now you're going to set up a group, a nice little group for autistic adults, and it's going to take that much commitment, that much energy. You're going to have to send so many emails a week. You're going to have to do it probably on a Saturday. It's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask professionals. Yeah. Well, is there space to have like a co-leader or, you know, someone who's trustworthy and trained to step in sometimes or, you know, handle some admin or logistical things so that it's not all just on one person? Yeah. No, it's not. At the moment, you know, it, it kind of befalls on the person who is the most knowledgeable. But as the project progresses, we've got this training offer that we're doing. And that's also going to go public when the project goes out, where hopefully people will be able to start delegating a little bit more. So mm-hmm. in those two groups that I was talking about, there is somebody who can delegate. And the group leaders who are going to follow on that I'm training at the moment, one thing that I made, I made clear to them is that, you know, even so you're going to benefit from that. And a lot of the people in the community are going to benefit from what you're doing, from setting up a group. It is a fair amount of work and you do need to find somebody to help you or somebody who's willing to step up before the group is started. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we I've tried to explain to them that there is actually quite a lot of foundation that needs to be built properly before you can start your group so you don't get swamped straight away. Because as soon as somebody goes public with a group, 
you know, they get swamped because, they, you know, they get so much demand. The very first group I started, I put like a quick, e- a quick email. I put a, like a mailbox on the National Autistic Society side, just saying, you know, it was like half a page. We're starting this project. If you're interested, email this. Within three days, I had a hundred queries from all over Wales. And, and, you know, so much that after three months, when I better shut that box down. <laughs> and I was the only one. I was the only one because I was the leader and everybody was involved in like different areas of the project. I had to pick up all those, all those queries. And, you know, that's fine because, you know, that's part of my job. I'm the leader. But the next cohort, the next bunch, who are going to be like group leaders that we're training at the moment, they are just members of the public. You know, they've got other things to do with their life than pick up hundreds of emails. So they need to know how do I filter that? How do I get in touch with those people? How do I start screening people? How do I make sure that the people who are going to join my group are going to be kind of like, like-minded? There is a lot of thinking to do before you can even hit that button on Facebook saying, bing, I've just created a group, you know, because it he, he gets really popular really quick, which obviously is because of the nature of the need. Yeah. But you have to protect yourself as well as the leader of a group because it's you are responsible in a way mm. for the group. Not from a legal perspective, but you are responsible for the group, for its well-being, but more importantly, you're also responsible for your well-being. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. What is that quote? You can't lead from an empty cup or you can't serve from an empty cup. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what are the responses that you get from the participants? What I mean, that one person you said who is fully immersed now in the group and is actually beating other people at bowling. What about <laughs> other participants? What are How are you measuring outcomes and success? So as part of the project, you know, we, we want to, obviously we want as many people to be able to to do this, to, to start the group. So we, we were like, we need to show exactly what happens when you do a group, when you do that. So we shot this film and uh, we shot it where the pilot took place in that boarding place. And I was wondering, okay, I need people on camera. Am I going to even attempt them to go on camera? So once, once I knew it was really happening and it was on that location, I sent a group email and I said, listen, I need people to, to talk on camera about what the group has done for you. If anything, you know, was there any positive for you? Who's willing to talk? And they all said, yes, this is amazing. And when they went on camera, I was kind of expecting, when I saw the first cut, when they went on camera, obviously I wasn't involved. I was looking after everybody. Simon was looking after everybody else. So we didn't really hear what was happening because it was in a, in a pool room. But, you know, they seemed to be having a good time. You know, you could tell they were nervous, but it was you know, quite good. And when I look at the first cut, I was just absolutely blown away about on, on what they said. They said, you know, this group has changed my life. Or I haven't been out for six months straight. This is the first time I've actually left my house. This group has made me more confident. This group makes me think that I could go back into employment one day. You know, I've got friends. I never had friends before. You know, it's those kind of massive life-changing, life-altering statement that they're making on camera. And yeah. I knew that they were benefiting, but 
hearing them articulating to what extent that group is good for them, that did make me really proud. And, you know, I have to go on camera at the end and like, please make sure you cut that out. Nobody wants to see that. But uh, but it, it was just, you know, I, I, I came home and I really was buzzing and I was quite proud of, uh, well, not just proud of myself because I, even so I worked fairly hard. A lot of the work was organic. You know, the result was those people getting together. What was really interesting is what they talk about when they're together. You know, 20 people who don't know each other from Adam, the one thing they've got in common that they, you know, they're all autistic. And, you know, you've got anyone from like 25 to the oldest group attendee we've ever had was uh, 75 twin sisters. And they still find common ground and things to talk about. That's another thing I've learned. Even when you hit 75, you still have a special interest, which is amazing. <laughs> you know, and you watch all, you watch those like 20 unknown people who didn't know each other at all. And they, they, they're eating together and they're laughing together. And they talk about the diagnosis. They talk about their interest, about their cats and their dogs. Sometimes they talk about their children if they have some. You know, it's, your looks perfectly normal. You know, you look at it and say, this is amazing. I don't know why it should be so amazing, but it's just amazing. And you realize that, you know, those guys have never done something like that, never talking to, to unknown. So mm. I was really, I feel really privileged being able to, to do this job and, and running this project because I know it's improving people's life. And more importantly, because of that, it seems to be, giving people who would not have thought about this in a million years the desire to get those benefits that they feel and providing them for someone else by starting a group, which is actually incredible. Because one of the misconceptions that I think in your original brief, one of the things I was wondering was, how do you get an autistic adult from attending a group which is easygoing, you just need to get there and have a good time and that's it, to actually from attending to actually wanting to run a group where the benefits are more directed outwards to others because it is going to be a fair amount of work. So you're not going to find it super pleasant, but you know you're going to provide pleasure and benefits to to other people. You know, how do we get from, from that place to that place? And, you know, watching that, it just happens so naturally. People come to you and say, well, I've attended this three times now. I love it. And now I'm my own group. And we're going to talk about, you know, uh, it's going to be a Star Wars group or, you know, a board game group. And it's like, amazing. Go for it. I find you a, a venue or something. It's in them. You know, yeah. autistic people are desperate to be social. And that's mm-hmm. that's one of the big misconceptions. You, lo- you look at it from like a, a medical perspective. You look at theory of mind. And you always think that, you know, autistic people don't really feel like being social or they're quite happy by themselves. And actually, it's not true. You know, most of them are desperate for social contact. It's just very hard for us to to get it right, but we're desperate to get it. Mm, Yeah. Well, Stefan, the work that you're doing, you know, you're making such a difference in, in people's lives. And by empowering other people to start their own groups, that ripple effect that you're seeing, it must be incredible. Like knowing that 
you know, you're connecting people at a deeper level. I think really one of the core components of being human is connection with each other and relationships, meaningful relationships, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And you're setting up the container for people to do that. So congratulations to you. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. The work is never done. You know, it's always like you always continues, but it's, you know, we're showing good practice and this is what it's all about. You know, if you show good practice, it gives also organization, also communities, you know, they start thinking, okay, this can be done. Actually, they start thinking about what OTC people can do and want to do rather than what we think is good for them. I think Mm. that's part of the narrative as well. You know, there is a lot of assumptions out there and I was just as guilty as everybody else, you know, thinking, you know, sometimes this is not going to work. They're not going to travel, never. Actually, you know, yeah, they will take the train for two hours to get to the venue. So, yeah, it's learning by seeing it, I think. And uh, the more we learn, the more we can actually provide what's needed for the community. And if we provide what's needed, we as a society, we're going to see the benefits tenfold, hundredfold. But we need to start thinking, why is it that as professionals, as organization, why is it that we need to provide for those people to to do what they you know should be doing you know what they're entitled to be doing mm-hmm. and um, absolutely that's the key yes i see some parallels with our online global autism community we host these monthly roundtables and it gives people a chance to come together and talk about specific topics so do you offer anything online yeah, yeah, we've got a we've got a group online that was actually part of uh, one of the things from the government that we needed a group online because Wales is such a, a spread area and there are some people who generally, as much as they want to, they're just not going to make a venue or not going to be able to 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 connect. Right. So we've got a an online group which is about sixty strong, all over Wales. I've got a group leader stuck in there, and our job is to do something like every two weeks. So every two weeks they would do like a, a virtual bingo or they would do like a coffee mornings or virtual. It was never my priority because I was so bent on getting people out. But I met a really good organization in England who actually use, well, very good with tech and building like bespoke platforms. And they, they built this kind of like meeting platform. And when I heard about it, I was like, I know exactly what to do with that. So they gave us a space and now that's it. So we've got a online community, which is, you know, very, very alive. And actually some of those people are starting to, okay, this is great. How do we get to, how do we get to meet like in real life? Mm. And, you know, I kind of like support them, you know, find a location where they can all meet up and and so on. So yeah, there is a a big community online, but it's definitely a, it's a different flavor, but I think it's it's important as well. It's just, you know, you want to move away from like Teams and Zoom a bit. <laughs> but yeah, it is really important because some people are just, you will have people who are not quite ready for the face-to-face. It's not just like getting there. It's just, oh, I, I really want to take part, but I don't know if I can actually be there in person. I feel a bit too 
you know, what are the way outs that is, what is the way out if I need to absolutely leg it because it's getting too much. I, I have that mm-hmm. happen. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's about understanding why everybody needs. So it was important to, to provide a platform like that. Yeah. Right. Good. All right. Well, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to other autistic adults who are looking for support? Where is a good place to look? Where is a good place to go? Um, well, not wanting to plug my organization too much, but if you're in the UK, you should definitely check out our organization, the National Autistic Society, just because we've got so many resources and we work all over the UK and we know everyone, you know, everyone on the autism scene, whether it's professionals, local authorities, you know, we literally know everyone. We've got great training. We're really good at explaining what is autism. We've had thousands and thousands of people who have hit our website. You know, like, for example, I'm 40, just been diagnosed. What's going on? Nobody has actually explained to me what this is. Organization will tell you we've got a lot of resources. We just explain it really clearly. Same thing for, for children and parents. You know, if you're a parent, if you're an autistic adult, but you're also a parent and you want to talk about what that means for your children, or you want to like have the autism talk with them, we have a lot of resources to do that. So organization is great, but also as much as I hate to publicize it because I'm not a massive fan of it, social media can be really useful. Facebook mm-hmm. can be very useful. You know, just uh, a few selective searches will show you that there is actually not just help out there, but people who just like you want to do something or link up with someone. So social media can be really useful. And also local knowledge. You know, I think no matter where you are as an autistic adult, not just in the UK, but in the world, if you look at a statistic, there is actually somebody else who is autistic not far from you, just have to find them. We are very close by and, you know, we become closely needed. So there is a lot out there, but I think a lot of it is about, it's about not being afraid, not being afraid to, to be vulnerable with it, it because you, it's very easy to sit with it and say, well, this is who I am now, or I've worked with a lot of, you know, part of the group in, in a project, a lot of uh, adults who have been diagnosed just like a few months ago, a lot of them were diagnosed during COVID and, so they got a diagnosis kind of like sent to them and that was it. And you're kind of holding that and you have to make peace with it. And for some people, it happens very quickly. You know, they realize that actually nothing really has changed. It's just explaining a few things better. And some people really struggle with it. They just sit with it and they're like, am I a completely different person now? Or, you know, there is a lot that's happening in the head and that's why they really need to speak to someone. So, I think making peace with it is important, but I think sometimes in order to do that, you do need to speak to somebody who is in the same boat as you. So not being afraid to, to actually go and reach out. Usually just, you know, talking to your local doctor, your local GP and say, look, I've just been diagnosed recently because, you know, GPs don't know everything when it comes to autism. Can you recommend anywhere? And slowly, you know, somebody will give you like a name or a place you can go, some kind of autism service, 
And somewhere in that survey, somebody will know someone who is doing something socially, even if it's just one person. And mm. that's how it starts. And my hope is that this time next year, when somebody wants to get support, there will be an autistic adult group nearby and they will, you know, not too far from them because the, you know, we don't, it would have mushroomed to a point that there would be groups absolutely everywhere. That's, that's my hope anyway. Yeah. Well, yes. And we'll stay tuned for the release of that toolkit. <laughs> yeah. So people can be ready to start their own groups. All right, Stefan, thank you so much for sharing your work with us and please keep it up. The community's, um, Thankful to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. As Stefan mentioned, autistic people want connection just like everyone else. Meaningful relationships can be made with the right container and support. Our online global autism community is a safe space for autistic people and their allies to share stories and learn from one another. Whether you're a self-advocate wanting to connect with other autistic people, or you're a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one, or you're a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice, you can join our online global autism community to collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, You'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.